It is the very rare, very rare time when I am ever nervous to present a message to you or to anyone. I finally overcame that. About a week ago, I stopped getting nervous. No, I'm kidding. But I'm not nervous for the classic reasons. I'm nervous because we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about anti-Semitism. And it's an incredibly important topic and it needs to be known. What I'm nervous about is that I have enough information in my brain right now to fill about two and a half semesters of college curriculum on anti-Semitism, the history of the Jewish people, the history of the Palestinian people, anti-Semitism and everything you can imagine is crammed into this microscopic brain. And I have to fit that into 30 minutes or so, which is not going to happen, but somewhere close to that, in something that you are going to walk out of here retaining and remembering when the force of anti-Semitism rises before you, which it inevitably will. That's what I'm nervous about because this is important. I want you to hear it. I want you to retain it. I want you to take notes. If you don't take notes, listen to the recording and take notes because I'm going to give you information that is very, very important for you to know. Now, a disclaimer. Disclaimer before we jump in. I understand and know that the nation, the country, the state of Israel is not perfect. I understand that Israel is governed by human beings. I understand that Israel has done some things in its history and past that are not perfect. And even today, I'm certain things happen in Israel that are not ideal, that are not Torah-based. I'm certain of it. I'm certain of the fact that in Israel, even the ultra-religious who rule in government are as corrupt as an Al Capone mafia party. I'm certain of it because I've seen it. So, disclaimer one, Israel is not perfect. Disclaimer two, I am Jewish. The perspective you will hear today is a Jewish one because that's the perspective I know. However, I also know the other side. I also have researched and studied and spent a lot of time understanding. Someone asked me last week, are you compassionate toward, and we'll, we'll, in this particular question, toward the Palestinian people, are you compassionate? Yes, I am. I am also compassionate toward the preservation and transmission of truth. And so the perspective you will hear today as we move forward will inform this discussion. But it is based on, and you can argue with me if you will, facts. So, as we jump in, where have we been? We've talked to this point from ancient anti-Semitism to what I'll call modern anti-Semitism, which in essence is from Pharaoh to Hitler. We've talked about two forms of anti-Semitism, racial anti-Semitism and religious anti-Semitism, and how they combine to form with the Jewish people a unique form of hate that cannot be replicated, which is why it's one of the most uh, insidious and difficult challenges that we face. But what we're here to do today is to talk about what I would label contemporary anti-Semitism because it has a new face. 
It has a new form built on the same foundation as always, but with some new terms, a new complexion, a new form that's satanically insidious and inspired, but is very hard to argue with. And that sounds just like something that the enemy could contrive. And so the narrative is changing. And what we're going to talk about today is that narrative. And we're going to talk about a little bit of history. But that's my third disclaimer. I am not a history teacher in the traditional sense. This is not a college class. This is an opportunity to learn some basic history which should in turn inspire you to learn the full story on your own because I can't do that in here. So, what is the new face? Well, first of all, let's quote something from JFK that I find just to be incredibly, incredibly applicable and wonderful. John F. Kennedy Jr. said, the, or John F. Kennedy said, the great enemy of truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, dishonest, but the myth, persuasive, persistent, and repeated. The great enemy of truth is not often the lie, deliberate, contrived, dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and repeated. We have a new face, and it feeds on the ignorant, but not in the same way that anti-Semitism has always fed on the ignorant, which was the peasants of the Middle Ages, the uneducated who had no access to books or anything like that, people who could or would believe anything and had no option to verify it any other way. We have people today who are buying into the new face, which are not educationally ignorant. They are not uneducated. They are not poverty-stricken uh, peasants working in fields. These are people who are educated, but they are ignorant nonetheless to the facts of the matter. And so anti-Semitism in any form must have an audience which it can feed on, which are the ignorant. Now, what is the new form? It is a form of anti-Semitism that feeds on our inherent compassion. You see, whether you believe in God, don't believe in God, whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a Buddhist, God placed within you a divine spark, an inherent ability to be like Him. He said, let us make them in our image. Divinity, divine, and within that comes a basic recognition of what is right and what is wrong. And you, there are some psycho people, some insane people who don't have that, that ability. But for the most, for the majority of the human race, there is an inherent ability to determine right from wrong. And when we see injustice, regardless of our background, we must rise to the occasion to defend the victim. And therefore, I'll take my new name of tolerant anti-Semitism, and let me relabel it as victim-based anti-Semitism. 
We've talked about religious anti-Semitism. We've talked about racial anti-Semitism. And now I offer you contemporary anti-Semitism's new name, victim-based anti-Semitism. But that is not the name you will hear because there is a beautifully contrived mask which has been created which can take the anti-Semitic, anti-Jew part out. Does anyone know what this mask, what this cover's name is? Not anti-Semitism. Anti-Zionism. Anti-Zionism. There was a book in the 1850s copied off of something that somebody, either Napoleon or someone in Napoleon wrote, that, and somebody took this this manuscript and copied it and changed it into something called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was one of the most popular books in the Arab culture from 1950 and on and was, was, uh, what's it called, distributed by Arab governments around the world in 1975, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It is an anti-Semitic Slam. It is full of lies. It is a Hitler-esque document. But Zion is the key word. Because if we can replace Jews with Zion, we can get away with murder. Literally. Another great quote. This one from Dr. Martin Luther King. When, you, when people criticize Zionists, they mean Jews. You're talking anti-Semitism. Dr. Martin Luther King, who I respect in so many different ways on so many different levels, had the insight to know back then, when you criticize Zionists, you're talking, you're criticizing Jews. You're talking anti-Semitism. But here's the ultimate redirect. If we redefine anti-Semitism and we redirect it to Zionists, we don't hate Jews. We don't hate Jews. We hate Zionists. Filthy scum of the earth who happen to be Jews. Not all. There are a number of Christian Zionists. They're hated too, but just not quite on the same level. You've got you to have an extra level to really garner the hate. Now here's the problem. Everyone can participate in this. Christians can participate. Muslims can participate in this anti-Zionist form of anti-Semitism. Liberal Jews participate. I don't hate my fellow Jews. I just hate Zionists. That's crap. There is an organization called the Jewish Voice for Peace. You should go to their website and take a look. I love my fellow Jews and I stand with my fellow Jews to a point. This also works for the, the Haredi in Israel. The ultra-religious who think that Israel shouldn't exist, but yet they live there. Why shouldn't it exist? Why did they collaborate with Muslims 
and even Palestinians today to destroy Israel. Why? Because only Messiah can establish Israel. And in 1948, when a secular government established this country, that could not be from God and therefore it should not exist. So everybody can play. Christians, because what would Jesus do? He would never let those mean Zionists cause problems for the Palestinians. We must rise to their occasion or to their defense because we are Jesus followers. I got news for you about Jesus, and I'll tell you at the end. Muslims, occupiers, that I hate the occupiers. We're killing all of them. So the foundation of the new anti-Semitism allows everyone to participate. It's, it's Israel equals Zionists, and according to Martin Luther King, equals Jews. Now, Natan Sharansky, who was a refusenik in Russia, spent about 12 or 15 years, I can't remember, in a gulag in Siberia in prison, escaped, made his way to Israel, became the... the Something executive of the Jewish agency from 2000-something to 2018, he just stepped down. This is a guy who, who has been through hell and back with Russian anti-Semitism and is seeing anti-Semitism in, in Israel and has played a part. And he defines something called the three Ds, the three Ds of anti-Semitism, contemporary anti-Semitism. Demonization, double standard, and delegitimization. The three Ds. Double standard, demonize, delegitimize. Demonize is easy. This is not new. This has always happened. The blood libel, right? The black plague. Agents of Satan. Devils. Jews. Horns on their head. Devils. That's not hard. Now there's an interesting new way to do it. It's all the same way. There was an uh, article in a Sweden, Swedish newspaper called Oftenbladet, which has been accused many times of anti-Semitic writing with a lean, with a little bit of a mask, a little bit of a mask. What is the mask? Anti-Zionism. Do you know what one of their stories that was published was? That when Palestinians are killed, the IDF goes in, harvests the organs, and sells them for money. And it was published, and it was not refuted it's blood libel. It's like mixing blood of children for the Jews to make their matzah on Passover. It's no different. So to demonize and to call Jews uh, uh, the, the uh, apartheid, to call Jews Nazis. There is no more foul word on earth than the word Nazi. There is no more disgusting connotation that comes to your mind. It's like me standing up here and just starting to say cuss words. Everybody in here would be like, ah, what is he doing? So we use these terms to define the Zionists, Nazis, apartheidist, if that's a word. And that's easy to dehumanize, I mean to demonize because that's been happening all along. That's been happening all along. That's in essence what demonization is. It's dehumanization. And every, every culture, every religion, every race that is going to be killed for who they are and what they are inherently must be dehumanized. And we talked about that last week and Hitler did that. 
Next, the double standard. This is really one of my favorites because this one's also so easy. Apartheid. Do you know what apartheid means? It means separate by race. It's based on a Dutch word. South Africa. Also, a hellaciously bad word to call somebody. Particularly when Arabs live within Israel in major, major numbers. Serve and work alongside Israelis. Serve in the Knesset. Are part of the lawmaking body of Israel. Are cared for in Jewish hospitals, of course. But apartheid means separated by race. I have a re I have a reevaluation of this. Israel built a wall to keep terrorists out. Do you know what the reduction in suicide bomb numbers looked like? 90%. I am not separating you by race if I'm Israel. I am separating you by behavior. And it is a very real thing. Do you know in the last week, as I mentioned, 370 rockets have been fired into Israel from Gaza. 370. Most of them are stupid little peasant rockets. But the rockets! And people were hit. Somebody was killed. It may have been a Palestinian, though, I think, who was killed. But I want to, I want to read you something. This is from 2016, terror attacks in Israel. This is old numbers. These are, there are newer numbers, of course. Newer numbers. But these are from 2016 as reported by the Washington Post, which is certainly no conservative publication. The attacks carried out by Palestinians against Israelis often appear to be spontaneous and opportunistic. Many are undertaken by young unmarried Palestinians. The most common weapon used is a kitchen knife. The second most common is the family car. That's a whole other level of, of hell. October 1st, 2016, and every day of the month of October, November, December, 84 stabbings, 57 attempted stabbings, 31 car attacks, 20 shootings, and 4 bombings. Separated by behavior. If you want to kill me, I will kill you first. But the better option is that I don't let you around me or my family so that we don't have to get to that level, right? That's common sense. It's not apartheid. That was something different. That was pure racial bigotry and hatred. But actually, I don't know what it was because I'm not from South Africa. So all I know is what somebody else told me. So maybe I don't know the whole story, okay? But I know that was certainly a part of it. But that's not what's going on there. Double standard, let's look at the UN for just a second. Do you know that right now, in the UN, my brother sent me this last night in the form of a text message. Let me just see what this says because this is valuable information. Condemnations to be adopted today and over next month at the UN General Assembly. Condemnations to be adopted yesterday and over the next month. 20 against Israel. One against Iran, one against Syria, one against North Korea, one against Crimea, one against Myanmar, one against the U.S., zero against China, Iraq, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Turkey. 
Do you know that in 1975, the UN passed a resolution that said Zionism is racism? It was repealed in 1991. Here is the response of Chaim Herzog in 1975. By the way, by the way, as the UN was approving Zionism as racism, Pol Pot in Cambodia was killing an estimated three million people. Do you know how many resolutions were spoken against Cambodia and Pol Pot? Guess. Yes. Here's what Chaim Herzog said in 1975, the 10th of November, right around this time, when he stood up and said, I can point with pride to the Arab ministers who've served in my government, to the Arab deputy speaker of my parliament, to Arab officers and men serving of their own volition in our border and police defense forces, frequently commanding Jewish troops, to the hundreds of thousands of Arabs from all over the Middle East crowding the cities of Israel every year, to the thousands of Arabs from all over the Middle East coming for medical treatment to Israel, to the peaceful coexistence which has developed, to the fact that Arabic is an official language in Israel on par with Hebrew, to the fact that it is as natural for an Arab to serve in public office in Israel as it is incongruous to think of a Jew serving in any public office in an Arab country. Indeed, being admitted to many of them, is that racism? It is not. It is Zionism. And so in 1991, the UN in all its wisdom thought that it would be a good idea to repeal that. But nothing has changed. As a matter of fact, it's worse. You know, there is somebody who I think would really feel good about the UN today. Somebody who'd really fit in well. Initials A period H period. Went by Adolf. He'd feel real good sitting in a UN seat. Just what he wanted. But the last one and the most important one is delegitimization. And I'm making my way through this material. I hope you're with me. There's more to share. Delegitimization, the number one tool of the anti-Zionist slash anti-Semite in contemporary victim-based anti-Semitism. What does this mean? It means that Israel has no right to the land in which they currently reside. It takes aim at the four, pro, four reasons that Israel has a right to the land, that it was biblically given, that they purchased the land, that it was acquired through wars of defense, defensive wars, and that the Balfour Declaration gave to Israel the land, at least a portion of the land which it possesses. Do you know how big the piece of land that was supposed to be given to, that was supposed to be Palestine? It's huge. It included Jordan. And at the last minute they decided, no, let's not do that. Let's give Israel this. Let's give Israel, now listen to me. Let's talk about the geography and the population real quick. Israel has 8,000 square miles of land. The Muslim Arab countries have approximately four and a half million square miles of land. The non-Muslim Arab countries have another 3.8 million square miles of land. That is 560 times more land than Israel possesses. The population 
Well, actually, I know this is very hard to do, but I'm going to do it. And this is your history lesson. Because this is the number one tool and weapon of the Zion hater. By 1949, the British had allotted 87,500 acres. 47%, there's a lot of numbers. They had allotted 47% of the 187,000 acres of cultivable land to Arabs. And only 4,250 acres, 2% to Jews. Ultimately, well, I'll skip that. The British placed restrictions on Jewish immigration while allowing Arabs to enter the country freely. In 1915, approximately 83,000 Jews lived in Palestine. In 1922, 84,000. In seven years, 1,000 more Jews lived there. In the same time, 590,000 Muslims lived there in 1915, and 643,000 lived there in 1922. The Arab population grew exponentially. The British gave in furthered Arab demands in 1939 white paper. Jewish immigration was said to be limited to 75,000 for the next five years. Did you hear the year this was? 1939. The British prohibited Jewish immigration, 75,000 for the next five years, and then no more could come in. Jewish immigration was to cease altogether. It also forbade land sales to Jews in 95% of the territory of Palestine. The Arabs nevertheless rejected the proposal. In 1935, 66,000 Jews immigrated to Israel. In 1939, 31,000 immigrated to Israel. In 1940, 10,000 immigrated to Israel. And in 1941, as the ovens were firing up, 4,500 Jews were allowed into Israel. The gates of Palestine remained closed for the duration of the war, stranding hundreds of thousands of Jews in Europe. The Jewish population increased between, by 470,000 between World War I and World War II, while the non-Jewish population increased by 588,000. The Arabs were flowing into Israel. Flowing in. I want you to hear that. They were not there at that point. Flowing in. The rapid growth was a result of several factors. One was immigration from neighboring states, that is, Arab countries, constituting 37% of the total immigration to pre-state Israel, by Arabs who wanted to take advantage of the higher standard of living afforded by the Jewish improvements to Israel. The Arab population also grew because of the improved living conditions created by Jews as they drained malarial swamps, improved sanitation and health care to the region. For example, Muslim infant mortality fell from 201 per thousand in 1925 to 94 in 1945. The life expectancy rose from 37 years old in 1926 to 49 in 1943. Why? Jewish improvement you are such a you are so prejudiced it's the facts ma'am just the facts despite the growth in population i'm almost done reading just stay with me 
The truth is from the beginning of World War I, part of Palestine's land was owned by absentee landlords who lived in Cairo, Damascus, and Beirut. Did you know that our good and dear friend Yasser Arafat immigrated to Israel from Cairo? He's not a natural born, Pal was not a natural born Palestinian. About 80% of the Palestinian Arabs were debt-ridden peasants, semi-nomads, and Bedouins. Jews went out of their way to avoid purchasing land in areas where Arabs might be displaced. The land they sought was uncultivated, swampy, and ready for improvement. As a matter of fact, Ben-Gurion said, do not displace Arabs. Don't do it. Only if a fella, that's an Arabic word for like, I think it means peasant, leaves his place. If only he leaves, should we offer to buy his land at an appropriate price. Do you hear that? How does that stack up against the narrative that's out there in the world right now? And it continues. It was only after the Jews had bought all the available uncultivated land that they began to purchase cultivated lands. The Jews, John Hope Sampson, arrived in Palestine, uh, Simpson in May 1930. He observed, the Jews paid high prices for the land. In addition, they paid to the certain of the occupants, occupants of those land a considerable, a, a considerable amount of money which they were not obligated to pay. It's like Abraham buying the cave of Machpelah when he gave him an exorbitant sum. By the way, he bought that, Abraham. The Peel Commission, this was... Uh, a commission funded and started by Britain found that Arab complaints about Jewish land acquisition were baseless. It pointed out that much of the land now carrying orange groves were sand dunes or swamp and uncultivated when it was purchased. Do you hear me? There was at the time of the earlier sales little evidence that the owners possessed either the resources or the training to develop the land. This is from Britain who did not want the Jews there. The Jews were paying exorbitant prices to wealthy landowners. In 1984, Jews paid $1,000 to $1,100 per acre of semi-arid dry land in Israel, while at the same time, in Iowa, rich black fertile soil was selling for $100 an acre. They're buying rocky desert for $1,000 from people. By 1947, Jewish holdings in Palestine amounted to 463,000 acres. 45,000 were given by the British government. 30,000 were bought from churches. 387,500 acres were purchased from Arabs. Purchased from Arabs. Purchased from Arabs. Remember that. When the narrative comes looking for you and says, occupiers, thieves, Murderers. And last but not least, Haj Amin El Husseini. Anyone know who he is? He is Hitler's good Arab buddy. He was the, he was the leader of the Palestinian resistance in Israel begun in 1921. And he found himself in 1939 buddying up with Hitler, talking to him about the Jewish problem and how he wanted him to destroy all the Jews in Israel just like he was doing in Germany and the rest of the world. This man is, not single-handedly, but certainly plays a massive role in the fact that 76% of Arab nations today are anti-Semitic. Arabs in Arab nations are anti-Semitic. That is not, it's, it's an age-old issue, 
But the level that it is today and the way it is today, you can thank Hajal Amin, I'm sorry, uh, Hajamin El Husseini and Adolf Hitler working together. He was the Mufta of Palestine. That's all the reading I'm going to do to you, but I want you to understand. The Arab population in the world is 400 million people, the Jewish population in, in, in that area. 7 million Jews. 250 settlements established in the West Bank and Gaza since 1950. 750,000 Arabs to 300,000 Jews. Now, here's the big deal. There's a thing that was called the exile, the exodus. Did you know Palestinians have their own exodus? 700,000 approximately. Are you with me? Is this information valuable? Does it matter? 700,000 Palestinians or Arabs were supposedly expelled from the land of Israel as Israel came in and destroyed everything in their path. Not true. 700,000 Palestinians left Israel. Many fleed on their own account. Some were expelled. Some were displaced. As I said, Israel is not perfect. There were things that were done wrong. There's no doubt about that. But Arab leaders were telling them, get out. We're going to come in and we're going to destroy this land. Get out now. They left. They ran. They abandoned everything. And they lost. And I'm sorry, but that's the way war goes. When you start a war and you lose, you lose it. Now, here's the problem. 700,000 of them. Do you know how many Jews were expelled from Arab lands at the exact same time? 800,000 Jews. Now, if there is justice in the world and the Palestinians have a right to their land and area as is promoted, what about my Jewish brothers and sisters? who left with not one possession, who lost everything because they were run out on a rail or probably at the end of one of those big curved swords, scimitar. What about them? Where's their reparation? Where's their worldwide outcry? I want my land back and where are the whiners? Where are they? Yes, I'm being a little hostile right now toward a side that lies. I don't like liars, and I don't like lies. But here's the justification, and here's why I will call this victim-based anti-Semitism. The question can and is asked. Why do you think they blow you up, you Zionists? Why do you think they stab you in the neck, you Zionists? Why do you think they teach their children to hate you? Why, do they, why, why, do you, why do you, are you surprised that the kindergarten graduation songs talk about spreading Jewish blood? Why are you surprised? Look what you've done to them. It's only natural that they would repay your satanic hate with a taste of your own medicine. Tell me where the Jews have done that. 
Tell me where the 800,000 Jews have done that. Tell me where the Jews have started a war in that period with Arabs. Tell me. Show me. They're occupiers. They're aggressive. They're demonic. They're, they have no right to the land. It's not true. Now, let me run quickly. Where does this take us? This takes us to places like BDS, Boycott, Divest, Sanction. Everybody knows about this. I don't have time to go into it. This takes us into college campuses in America. And most of all, the biggest danger, this takes us into Christian churches. And some synagogues, for goodness sakes. Now, Christians are primarily and, and, and overwhelmingly still pro-Israel. But here's how and where it breaks down. There are the, the, biggest, the biggest campus organized meeting of an organization called SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, is, is being organized this week at, at UCLA. It's closed. It's closed off to the media. You have to have been referred by one of the SJP. Do you know why? So that you can talk about killing Jews and not having it recorded. Somebody broke in, somebody snuck in and recorded their last meeting in 2017. Mmm, rich. Rich, really good stuff. You should see some of the quotes from the SJP leadership on their Facebook pages. Who wants to murder a Jew today? Or like, Comments about ovens and all this stuff. These are people who are allowed to meet on college campuses. Why? Because we've got to do something about these victims, about these satanic Israeli Zionists slash Jews. BDS. Churches. BDS. In, 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 in Minnesota, I am not, this is not political. I'm not, I don't want this to be political. Minnesota elected a representative who on the campaign trail said, I am not for BDS. And in the next week after being elected, told Muslim Girl Magazine, yeah, I'm for it. That's called a lie. <laughs> Too late now. She's a Somali Muslim, one of the two, two uh, Muslims. She replaced Keith Ellison, good friend of Louis Farrakhan, I believe. So that leads us into places where Louis Farrakhan can say things like, I'm not an anti-Semite. I'm an anti-termite. And, and, you familiar with the Women's March being organized in January? You familiar with the founders, the organizers, Linda Sarsour and, and Tamika somebody, I can't remember. This is not about women. It's not about misogyny. It's not about the Women's March. It's about their leaders who are good buddies with Louis Farrakhan, who just was in Iran, I think this is verified, chanting with the Iranians, death to Jews, death to America, for heaven's sakes. And even Hollywood people are backing off the Women's March, women because feminists, like because they, they don't want to do that. When I talk about Feeding on the ignorant, that's what I'm talking about. But it's the churches. It's, it's this danger. It's this JFK line. 
It's the myth that we must fear, not the direct lie. When you call a Jew a filthy, disparaging name, or you say they're possessed by Satan, that's easy. When you tell somebody who loves Jesus that Jews are doing wrong to innocent people, it's a myth, first of all. But it's believable enough based on what they see on TV. And so what happens? Well, we've, we've unfortunately, I have spent some time over the last several months talking about some prominent pulpits and the things that are coming off of those pulpits related to replacement theology. Do you know where replacement theology ends up? Replacement theology ends up at a place where we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We delegitimize the Jewish right to the land of Israel, I'm sorry, Zionist, we delegitimize the Scriptures by our reinterpretation of them, removing all prophetic reality for Israel and its end. And we end up in a place where the church and the Christian can agree with Hamas and say the Jew has no right to exist. That's a stretch, Damien. I don't think it is. You were not alive, but you know the history of what happened in Nazi Germany. These were smart people, educated people, who bought into the lie. Churches, popes, leaders. You had heroes. You had righteous Gentiles. But overall... It wasn't that. And so, my friends, if we erase the Old Covenant, it's easy to get them out of the way. And actually, isn't it all about love anyway? Isn't that what Jesus said? I give you a new commandment, love. Well, let me tell you what Jesus actually said. And we're going to end right here. There's a scripture in Matthew 25, 31-36. It turns out actually, turns out this will be a surprise that Yeshua is correct in His prophetic utterances about the love of many growing cold, about false teachers arising, all of this. It's happening. You may not really see it that way, but it is, and this is part of it. I want to give you a novel interpretation uh, of Matthew 25, which is the sheep and the goats. And I honestly can't remember if I heard this somewhere or if, if I came up with this. If I heard this from somebody, thank you for it. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. You need to listen to some of these key words. And He will separate them one from the other as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Okay? The nations are standing before Him. To the right are the sheep, to the left are the goats. You got the picture? It's the end. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father. 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. He goes on to say, I was thirsty. You clothed me naked. I was sick. You visited me. I was prison. You came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, who's he talking to? <clears throat> who's he talking to? The nations. And who is on the right? Those who are blessed by his father. And I will say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even of the least of them, you did it to me. Do you hear it? Do you remember Genesis 12? What does Genesis 12 say as God makes a promise to Avram? I will bless those who bless you. The nations, nations will come from you. I will bless those who bless you. And in this parable, this statement, it's not a parable, this story that Yeshua is telling here, this prophetic utterance, speaking to the nations, speaking to those on His right who are blessed by His Father because they cared for who? His brothers. Who is Yeshua? He is the son of David. He is the king of Israel. He is the representative of the Jewish people. Know it or not, like it or not, it is true. Who's on the left? Those who did not. And where do they go? It ain't pretty. It ain't pretty. So, call, tell me I'm digging Tell me I'm too midrashic. You're taking that out of context. Fine, I am. But I believe it. To everyone in this room, to everyone who ever meets me, to everyone who ever hears this message forever, as long as I live and when I'm gone, mark my words. I believe with all my heart. If you are anti-Semitic, if you buy the lies, and furthermore, if you do not stand with the Jewish people, if you do not rescue them, if you do not feed them, clothe them, remove them from prison figuratively and literally, it is not pretty. Because on the right are the ones who blessed me, Yeshua, and my brothers. The Jew. And I heard this in something my dad was listening to while I was sitting in his office. I don't even know who said it. Who said it? The guy yesterday. I don't know who said it, but it was wonderful. And here it is, brothers and sisters. The Jew uh, my notes um are a little hard to navigate, but this is, this is what I want to tell you. And this really is the end. And this is what this very well-stated, uh, well-spoken man stated yesterday. The Jew takes on the most loathsome characteristic of the society they live in by the society they live in. For 
the early Christian community and the church that developed thereafter, the Jew, killed Jesus. For the Nazi, the Jew is the ultimate race polluter. He is the, he is the threat to our Aryan existence, our purity, the Jew. To the Russian, the Jew was the capitalist. He's taking all your money, the greedy, old, dirty Jew. And to the victim, anti-Semite today, the Jew is the occupier. He is all those things and then some. He is a racist, apartheid, in a, a tool of Satan, liar, deceiver, and stealer of your land. And we must rise to meet once again the Jewish problem. My friends, you must be a part of the solution. Hitler tried the final solution. It failed because the Jews, like it or not, are the chosen people. One day they will say, Baruch Ababa Shem Aronai. We, until then, will do our part, Jew and Gentile, to battle this satanic disease called anti-Semitism. Shabbat Shalom.